Hello everybody, welcome back to another brand new episode of The Casual Criminalist. As always, hello there, I'm your host Simon. Uh, today's script has been written by David. If you're new here, what happens is I am written a script by one of our fantastic writers today, David. And uh, I've never read it before, I have no idea what this is about. We're going to explore the topic together and uh, really just see what happens. It's called The Hi-Fi Murders, which doesn't give much away other than the fact that uh, uh, some sort of hi-fi is going to be involved. <laughs> That's all I know. Let's get into it. Oh, if you're uh, enjoying this show, I mean in general, why not leave it a review? That'd be awesome. This episode comes as a request from multiple people. Hold your hats. Requests happen for a reason. If you would like to make a request for a subject, please reach out to us in the comments, on Twitter, or in a podcast review. Chances are I'll see it. Yeah, David, I often see David in the comments and on Twitter, looking at your uh, people hitting him up. I can't remember his Twitter handle, which is terrible. But if you find me on Twitter, I definitely follow him. And I follow like 10 people or something, so you can probably find him. Um, yeah, don't hit me up for suggestions. <laughs> I might not read them. But David does, because he's a better person than me. It's also worth pointing out that lately I've interviewed a fair few witnesses and perpetrators for various upcoming scripts. Oh my god, yes, yes. There's a couple of scripts that I'm really looking forward to getting to because David has been like putting his journalism hat on. It's pretty cool. These people have given me first-hand accounts in order to elevate the material with unique detail that you won't find anywhere else. If you feel that you have first-hand knowledge of a case that would make for a good episode of The Casual Criminalist, feel free to reach out. This goes for both witnesses and perpetrators, though with the latter group I reserve the right to run away screaming all the way to the police station. Yeah, the perpetrator, I know who this is, and uh, I'm like, yo, this isn't some Pedro Lopez mother this is uh it's it's different to that it's uh, it's a good story and i'm like i said i'm pretty excited to get that episode out make sure you're subscribed so you see it see what i did there i'm a good youtube back boy and now without further ado once more into the darkness the stench of a target It is April the 22nd, 1974. The town is Ogden, Utah, just 40 miles or 64 kilometers north of Salt Lake City. Ogden sits at the foot of the beautiful Wasatch, Wasatch Mountains and just astride the breathtaking Great Salt Lake. Combined with a temperate climate, all told, Ogden is a very picturesque part of the world to live in. In 1974, Ogden was still a railway hub for much of the country's public transport network and movement of manufactured goods, hence the motto adopted by the Chamber of Commerce, you can't get anywhere without coming to Ogden. I've been to I've been to Salt Lake City, not I, I don't know where. Where's this? Forty miles north. It's close to Salt Lake City. I was there for like half a day on a layover, and I was in a taxi, and it was my first experience with uh, the American verbalism or way of saying. Like I, I know this is some specific parts of America, but whenever they say something sarcastic, they'll have to finish it off with a very like with, by saying not, which like struck me as quite strange. So it'd be like, yeah, 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 the weather's really great today. Not. And I'd be like, why don't you just say it sarcastic? Like in the UK, we'd just be like, yeah, the weather's great today. And everyone knows that we're being sarcastic. Whereas in Salt Lake, this guy, like, and he was so sarcastic. But it was funny how often he was saying not. Like he'd just be chatting to me and be like, <clears throat> yeah, not. And I'd be like, okay, <laughs> I knew you were joking. It's pouring with rain. Fascinating story, Simon. Carry on. In 1974, Ogden was still a railway hub for much of the country's public transport and movement of manufactured goods, hence the motto adopted by the Chamber of Commerce, you can't get anywhere without coming to Ogden. The town was also, to use an adjective Simon coined in an earlier episode, quite mormony. 
1972, just two years prior to our story. I like that. I know I'm laughing at my own joke, but uh, I like the word Mormony. Uh, prior to our story, the Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints completed work on the Ogden Temple, a four-story building with golden windows and a spire that could be seen from all over town. Unlike most Mormon temples, there was quite a monstrosity of late 1960s and 70s modern architecture, which in my opinion was an architectural dark age. It looked like a giant McDonald's. Oh my god, yeah, 1960s architecture in the UK at least is f***ing horrible. You see like all these post-war tower blocks and stuff and it's just like, oh my god why why did we i know why because it's like oh, i it was after the war and the economy was a bit shit. so it's like we need to build houses for lots of people and so just build lots of houses and yeah yeah so large parts of the uk just look horrible the temple was redone in 2014 with a much more aesthetically pleasing classical exterior. The temple serviced tens of thousands of parishioners who, in 1974, amounted to pretty much the entire town. Ogden also had a significant military presence. A defense depot sat in the middle of town. To the south of Ogden was the Hill Air Force Base, and stationed there were the perpetrators of today's senseless and brutal slaughter. On the evening of April the 22nd, the hi-fi shop in downtown Ogden was staffed by two people, Sherry Ansley and Stanley Walker. In the 1970s, one couldn't just play music on one's phone and get high-fidelity sound from one's stunningly well-crafted and cost-effective Raycon earbuds. <laughs> this is my way of apology to Lord Ray of House J for a previous episode. <laughs> I like this episode isn't sponsored by Raycon. <laughs> Oh, instead, in order to play music, <laughs> I know they do sponsor. I don't know if they sponsor this show. <laughs> instead, in order to play musical records with high fidelity sound, one needed to purchase a bunch of highly expensive and bulky equipment, which would take up a quarter of your living room. As such, a shop full of this equipment would make for quite the lucrative target for a heist, and that is precisely what the culprits in today's episode had in mind. They'd knock off the shop, load out all the equipment, ship it to a different state, and sell it on the black market. All told, the job stood to make the hi-fi bandits a great deal of money. The perpetrators also had one other stipulation for the heist, which was from which they would not swerve. They were not going to leave any witnesses alive. Why? Why? Just wear masks. Look, robbery, bad crime. You're going to go to prison for a long time. Wear a mask so people can't identify you. There's no need to f***ing up it to murder, and don't i feel like this is again simon's like knowledge of american law from like tv and movies but i feel and i'm probably wrong and it's probably state specific blah 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 but if you do like robbery and murder at the same time like for some reason if you combine those crimes they can give you the old uh, needle in the arm can't they there's like something that makes it more serious like aggravated murder or some and i'm like yeah Yo, you're already murdering <laughs> does the robbery really matter you came seeking slaughter As evening fell on the town of Ogden, only two employees were left working at the hi-fi shop. As things wound down, they weren't expecting many customers. The lone salesman on duty, Stanley Walker, was 20 years old. He was tall, muscular, athletic, and handsome. So much so, he could be forgiven for the stereotypically bad 1970s haircut. All told, Stanley Walker was a model Utah citizen. He was a volunteer basketball coach. He was an activity coordinator for a local young men's club, the Mutual Improvement Association. <laughs> I wonder what that club does. Stanley attended the local Weber State College. He was even an elder of the local Mormon chapter. I was like, when is it? When are we finding out he's Mormony? This is Salt Lake or uh, Utah. Sorry, this you know, it's a bit Mormony. I like that. 
which despite the old foginess implied by the term is a title frequently bestowed on young men if they progress through a certain degree of religious instruction and to become community leaders whatever your personal opinion of mormonism it's quite clear that stanley walkers was a good egg and a decent human being i don't know much about mormonism i don't feel like mormonism is is mormonism a thing in the uk are people mormons who are the people who come to your house they're annoying um oh jehovah's witnesses jw.org you're welcome for that free plug jw um i only know it because where i go to get the tram to work in the morning there's often a jehovah's witness stand and they're just like they've got their leaflets and stuff and i'm like no <laughs> i'm not even into regular religion do you think i'll be into like more like intense version of religion where i have to stand around and recruit people to religion i mean maybe one day when i find jesus Working as a bookkeeper and a cashier at the hi-fi shop was Sherry Ansley, aged just 18. She attended Bonneville High School. This was Sherry's first week working at the store, a part-time job she'd gotten for a bit of pocket money. And with it being Utah in the 1970s, the young Sherry Ansley was already engaged to be married. The wedding was being held after graduation four months later in August 1974. I would have loved to have worked in a hi-fi shop. I worked in a few shops, and it was always like supermarkets and we'd sell like boring like milk. Working in a hi-fi shop would be like, That'd be way better. There'd be all sorts of hi-fis. You can listen to music. You can learn about hi-fis and tell people about hi-fis. I'd like that job. Instead, I'd tell people about milk. So, like, what sort of milk do you want? There's no one. No one asks that. No one ever. I don't even know why I said that. It's just boring. <laughs> hi-fis would be. I, I don't know. It's because I like audio stuff. I recently bought a great pair of headphones. It's blowing my mind. Like a couple of months ago, and I just sit down and listen to music that I've listened to, and I've got one of those high-fidelity streaming services called Tidal, and I'm like, oh my god. You can hear so much more of the music. It's like experiencing albums over again. It's a brilliant, it's a brilliant thing. I'm so happy I bought these. They weren't Raycons. Raycons are fine. Like they're just everyday listening headphones. But they're uh they don't give you that kind of sound that you get with a high-end pair. <laughs> totally losing my Raycon sponsorship, aren't I? <laughs> <laughs> no, they probably won't listen. Let's carry on. There's no other way to put it. Sherry Ansley was a fairly beautiful young woman, possessing a classical charm that not even the bad fashion trends of mid-1970s could diminish. All reports of her suggest she was an immensely cheerful and outgoing young woman, supportive of her friends. Sherry Ansley looked up and smiled as 16-year-old Courtney Nisbet entered the hi-fi shop. Courtney wasn't a customer. He explained that he, was, he needed to head next door to the Photoshop to pick up some pictures that he had developed, and he was wondering if it was okay if he left his car in the parking lot behind the hi-fi store while he ran the errand. It would only take a few minutes. Sherry said it was probably okay, but he better ask Stanley Walker. He did, and Stanley told him warmly that it would be perfectly fine. Courtney thanked them both and left. Courtney Nesbitt was a student at Ogden High School, where he excelled at science. He had what some people might call a baby face, which heightened his already obvious youth. But despite the outward look of innocence, Courtney also had a sharp look of intelligence in his eyes. After school, Courtney was training to be a pilot. Today, he had done his first solo flight, where he took off and landed the plane without any assistance from his instructor. As per a tradition at flight school, after Courtney's successful landing, his instructor had cut off his shirt tails with a pair of scissors, essentially the back few inches of whatever shirt you might be wearing that day. The shirt tails were then tacked up on a bulletin board with a diagram of the runway on it, and also the make and model of the plane Courtney had flown. All told, Courtney had enjoyed a very good day. He was just picking up those photos before returning home to dinner with his family. David, I get the feeling that by the way you're setting this up and giving us all this story about these wonderful people who are at the hi-fi store, that these people are all going to get murdered which i don't like <laughs> it's like you know in a, you're watching a tv show and there's that moment where they just do something I, I don't know i always point it out like we'll just be watching some show and i'll be like that person's gonna die 
because they do that thing where they humanize them it'll just be like oh they'll, they'll just talk about their family like a random character you know he's not normally part of the plot they'll talk about their family or their kids or something and i'll just be like that person's gonna die the the script writers have just humanized that person so we feel bad we feel something when they die rather than just like random character we don't care about i think that's what david's doing here and i don't like it david <laughs> i don't like it Shortly after Courtney Nisbet exited the shop, two vans containing six men slowly drove past the Hi-Fi store at 2323 Washington Boulevard in the town of Ogden. Da- traffic was fairly light on the road, with a smattering of commuters making their way home. The two vans pulled around the corner and entered the parking lot behind the store. The vans parked right in front of the shop's back door, which the employees used for unloading and loading new sound equipment. Four men exited the vehicles. Two getaway drivers remained at the wheel of each van, leaving the engines running, ready to pull away at a moment's notice. One man hung around the parking lot, waiting to load the stolen goods into the vans and acting as a lookout. The three remaining men, William Andrews, Pierre Dale Selby, and a third man who's never been identified, headed around the corner to the front door of the shop. Andrews was 19 years old, tall with a square jawline and extremely well-built and muscular. He had sharp, cold eyes and a frequent resting position and the frequent resting position of his face was a scowl. He's got resting scowl face. Selby, on the other hand, was not quite as well built as his comrades, but he was still lithe, fit, and sinewy. Sinewy? 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 He had a receding hairline despite being 21 years old. Familiar. <laughs> I don't think I was receding at 21, but from 22 to 23 to 25, it just all left. <laughs> His eyes and expression have often been described as empty, soulless, and devoid of any sign of humanity. If you have previously listened to descriptions of psychopaths on the casual criminalist, this particular trait will already be dreadfully, hauntingly familiar to you. Yes. The young men had been contemplating the robbery at the Hi-Fi store for weeks, and now it was showtime. The only issue was not getting caught. The men were stationed at the local airbase outside of town, which gave them a bit of anonymity. Being 1974, any sort of security camera footage was unheard of. That left the witnesses in the store, whose testimony might help police track the men down. The solution was simple. They all had to die. The solution f***ing simple. Just wear a mask, d***heads. The men burst into the store, aiming 25 caliber handguns at Sherry Ansley and Stanley Walker. And I mean, not just from the perspective of not being a piece of murderer, but also like, yo, if you just rob the store and run away, the police are going to put like, I mean, it's a big crime, so there's going to be an investigation, but it's not going to be the level of investigation where there's been multiple murders, is it? So even from the perspective of committing a better crime and increasing your chances of getting away with it, you shouldn't kill people. It makes no sense. We need to add that to the rule of crime somehow. The two employees were marched into the storage basement of the hi-fi shop and had their arms and legs bound with rope. The two hostages were left lying on their stomachs on the floor of the basement while the three men headed upstairs. First, they emptied the cash register. Then they started heaving the expensive equipment towards the back door of the shop. Propping the loading door open, two men began loading the equipment onto the vans while two getaway drivers sat there at the ready. The two remaining gunmen, Andrews and Selby, remained in the store to continue moving the equipment. At this point, Courtney Nesbitt exited the front of the next-door photo shop onto Washington Boulevard. He headed in through the front door of the Hi-Fi store as a means of a shortcut to the parking lot where his car was waiting. Courtney also intended on thanking Stanley Walker for letting him park there. Instead, Courtney encountered Andrews and Selby, who were in the midst of the robbery. They quickly subdued the young man, marched him at gunpoint downstairs, and similarly bound him just as they had done Stanley and Sherry. Andrews and Selby continued to move the hi-fi equipment to the loading door so that their collaborators could load it onto the vans. All told, the robbers managed to seize over $5,300 in sound equipment, which translates to roughly $30,000 in today's money. 
one of the biggest score in history. Such was the expensiveness of hi-fi equipment that robbing the store was about as good as knocking off a small-town bank, and unlike a bank, the hi-fi store had zero security. Is it really worth it? I mean, I know $30,000 in today's money is a lot of money, but there's six of these guys, so they're getting 5k each. And even if the even the guys I don't know how gang law works in the US, but I believe that the in the UK, I guess maybe in the US because there's probably gang laws as well, that the guys who are driving the vans are also guilty of murder. Is it really worth that for 5 grand? I mean, really? You're in the military as well, so it's not like you're without a job, you're getting some sort of pay. I'm sure pay in the military is not brilliant, but come on. Oh, and the, the reason they'd be guilty, at least in the UK, if, if I remember correctly, is if you commit a crime with someone else and you reasonably foresee that that someone else could commit grievous bodily harm, so really hurt someone, uh, and they kill someone, or you foresee that they could kill someone, and they end up killing someone, then you are also guilty of murder, which is intense. It's to like cut down on gang crime. <laughs> and this sort of thing. Meanwhile, Oren Walker, Stanley Walker's 43-year-old father, had grown worried that his son had not yet returned home. Oren Walker headed to the hi-fi shop. After entering through the front door, Oren was ambushed by Andrews and Selby, who, like the others, held Oren at gunpoint and took him into the basement. For the moment, and only for the moment, Oren Walker's arms and legs were not yet bound. This was, it was at this point that Sherry Ansley began crying and begging for her life. And you shall witness slaughter. After the capture of Oren Walker, Selby told Andrews to go outside to the vans and get something. A few moments later, Andrews re-entered the basement, clutching a brown paper bag, which contained a bottle of drain cleaner, the label of which was hidden from the view of the hostages. Standard household drain cleaner is a highly powerful and corrosive alkaline agent composed primarily of liquid sodium hydroxide, which in other which in otherwise solid, powdered form is called lye and is often sold to quickly break down organic material. Murderers often throw lye on corpses to speed up their decomposition. Liquid drain cleaner also frequently contains sodium hydrochloride, chlorine, and alkaline salts. Within a few moments, drain cleaner is able to cut through hair, grease, chunks of meat, and other forms of organic detritus that may have built up in the drains of one's kitchen or bathroom. Yeah, it's actually amazing. Like, whenever the, bath, whenever the, the sink in the shower gets blocked, you just throw, I, I didn't know it was lye or uh, this um, sodium hydroxide, whatever it is, you like pour it into the drain. You have to, I think you have to mix two things together maybe. So maybe it's something else. But anyway, you pour it down into that drain, you throw some water down there, and then it's like whoosh, all of this like smoke that I leave because I, like, I don't want to be poisoned by whatever the fuck that is. And then it's just like, I'm sure all the hair and stuff in the drain is just dissolved and then the shower drain works perfectly. And like, this is amazing. So that's what people use to dissolve bodies. I never put it together. <laughs> there we go. When using drain cleaner, one must be very careful to avoid letting the liquid come into contact with one hands, one's hands, clothes, mouth, or eyes, because if not immediately washed away, it can do severe and even permanent damage. Pierre Dale Selby had recently seen 1973's Magnum Force, starring Clint Eastwood, in which a female victim was forced to drink from a bottle of drain cleaner, and she died almost immediately. To Selby's mind, this method of execution possessed a number of advantages. First, drain cleaner was easily procured. Second, it was supposedly quick. Third, quietly poisoning the hostages in the basement of the hi-fi shop was preferable to shooting them, since the latter, me latter method ran the risk of people on the street or in the next-door photoshop hearing the gunshots and alerting the police. Have these guys, have these guys not heard of, like, strangulation or something like that? Like, I, I, drinking, this is how you choose to kill these people? What the fuck? 
what is wrong with you if you just want to do like just i don't know i don't want to talk about like preferable ways to kill someone but if someone was like drink the drinking or strangulation i'd be like fucking strangulation obviously of course the death depicted in the film which selby had seen was utter nonsense you don't drink death you don't drink drain cleaner and immediately keel over it's more likely that the director of the film merely didn't wish to show the true effects of drain cleaner on the human body upon consuming drain cleaner the liquid immediately burns your lips mouth and esophagus it then continues down your digestive tract scorching everything on the way down until it reaches your stomach where it starts to melt holes at a cell oh my god this is grim at a certain point you won't be able to swallow any more drain cleaner because the liquid will have already burned through your entire esophagus once the esophagus and stomach are breached the drain cleaner is free to enter the rest of the body where it slowly consumes your intestines and other vital organs usually at this point the victim has already died from shock due to the immense pain the drain cleaner will then destroy the person's lungs while they suffocate to death fairly sizable amounts of drain cleaner are required to cause death and the amount of time it takes can linger for 5 10 20 minutes after the drain cleaner is consumed dude i had no idea how horrible that was i was like i know people like this like don't drink drain cleaner and stuff you know you got to be careful you can't leave it around kids and all that stuff um I had no idea it was so horrible. While well, I just assumed it was kind of like a poisoning thing. Oh my god. With the bottle still hidden inside the paper bag, Selby poured out a cup of drain cleaner and handed it to Oren Walker, demanding that he administer the unidentified liquid to the other three hostages. Oren Walker refused. He was swiftly beaten as a consequence and then tied up with rope around the arms and legs and then left face down on the ground. At this moment, 52-year-old Carol Nisbet, the wife of a local doctor and Courtney Nisbet's mother, entered the front door of the hi-fi shop upstairs. She was aware Courtney was going to pick up some photographs before heading home after his flight lessons. With the hour drawing late, much like Oren Walker, Carol had gone looking for her son. Not finding Courtney at the photo shop, she noticed his car parked behind the hi-fi shop, so naturally, Carol went inside looking for him. The store was empty and abandoned when she entered. Not a soul was to be seen. Not only was the store devoid of people, it had been stripped bare of merchandise, and what scraps remained on the floor and shelves were in total disarray. The cash register hung open. A ledger had been hurled to the floor. Carol stood there for a moment, processing what she was seeing, and taking in the still unnerving silence. Then, with a sudden crash and a series of loud thumps, two men, Andrews and Selby, burst upstairs from the basement, aiming their handguns at Carol Nesbitt. She was forced downstairs into the basement, and she was bound with rope. Wow, this is really escalating. How many people are, how many people are there now down in the basement? We're talking of major murders. What was this episode called? The Hi-Fi Murders? Oh, man. <laughs> okay, so they're going to die. I really hope it's not the drain killer, though. That sounds fucking horrible. It was only at this point that Andrews and Selby had the good sense to lock the front door, lest the entire town turn up next. And at this point, the, in order for the six robbers to collect $5,000 apiece in today's money, the number of hostages had ballooned from two to five people. Yeah, is killing two people worth five grand? That's no, obviously not. It's insane. Five people is like two and a half times the insanity. Andrews and Selby returned to the basement. They pulled the five hostages off the floor and placed them in sitting positions against the wall. They told the five people that the liquid in the brown paper bag they'd just brought was vodka laced with sleeping pills. This would knock the hostages out and prevent them from calling for help or attempting to escape while the other robbers while the robbers left the scene. One by one, Stanley Walker, Courtney Nesbitt, Karen Nesbitt, Sherry Ansley, and Oren Walker were forced to drink the drain cleaner. The victims immediately received second-degree burns to their lips, mouths, and throats. The victims began coughing and screaming in pain. They screamed so loudly that Selby and Andrews tried to cover their mouths with duct tape. However, the adhesive would not stick to the victims' peeling and corroding skin and just slid off their faces. Eventually... Oh my god. This is horrible. Eventually, the injuries they sustained made it difficult for most of the victims to emit any sound any longer. God damn. What the... Like... 
I don't understand. You're just robbing. You just are financially motivated. Why the fuck do you have to kill them in this horrible way? I guess they just really thought that it just works like poison in this movie. Holy sh**. You fucks. Stanley, Courtney, and Kara went into shock and began convulsing. Sherry Ansley, in her emotional distress, appears to have up, coughed up much of the liquid without swallowing it, sparing her a great deal of internal damage beyond secondary degree burns to her lips and mouth. After Ansley's turn had finished, she was still able to swallow with difficulty and was still able to speak. Meanwhile, when it came for Oren Walker's turn to drink the liquid, having observed the liquid was not vodka and sleeping pills, but obviously some kind of corrosive material, Oren let the liquid dribble out of his mouth and down his chin as he drank it without swallowing. He then mimicked the screams and convulsions of his fellow hostages. It was by this clever move that Oren Walker avoided some fairly grim internal injuries. As five people lay there in agony, it slowly dawned on Selby that he had been led astray by the Clint Eastwood film it seen. The victims were not dying. The hi-fi equipment had long been loaded onto the two vans. The victims' screams may have caught the attention of someone on the street or in the next-door photoshop. Selby became angry. Andrews went upstairs. Meanwhile, Selby took his 25 caliber handgun and shot Carol and Courtney Nesbitt in the back of her heads. Selby then attempted to shoot Oren Walker as he lay there pretending to convulse on the ground, but the, but the bullet missed and lodged on the floor. Wow, someone is looking out for Oren. God damn. Selby then shot Oren's son Stanley in the head. Selby then returned to Oren and fired again, also hitting him in the back of the head. That dealt with four out of the five hostages. Man, I don't like this. Selby then called out to Andrews, and in an appalling display of recklessness and callous psychopathy, he told him to wait upstairs for 30 minutes. The perpetrators were now lingering needlessly at the scene. Selby turned to 18-year-old Sherry Ansley, who had re retained consciousness. Selby untied her, marched her at gunpoint to the far corner of the basement, and told her to remove her clothes. Selby then raped the victim. Afterwards, he ordered Sherry to use the downstairs toilet while he watched. Then Selby dragged her, still naked, to where the other victims lay. He then threw her to the and threw her to the ground. Sherry Ansley pleaded with him, saying, I'm too young to die, before Selby, before Selby shot her in the back of the head. Selby then called Andrews back down. This guy's a psycho. Selby then caused, called Andrews back downstairs and noticed that Oren Walker was still alive. The bullet had just grazed the back of his skull instead of killing him. The perpetrators were suddenly anxious not to let off another gunshot. It appeared that nobody had been alerted by the previous screaming and gunfire, and the men did not wish to tempt fate. Instead, Selby took a length of wire, climbed on top of Oren Walker's back, and attempted to garrot the victim. However, Oren struggled, and Selby was not able to exert the required amount of pressure to strangle Oren to death. Instead, Selby grabbed a ballpoint pen and shoved it into Oren Walker's ear. Selby then stomped the pen into Oren's head. No. Good lord. Uh, instead, the pen broke in Oren's eardrum and then angled downward, puncturing a hole in Oren Walker's throat just below the corner of his jaw. Oren was left to bleed out on the basement floor. Thereafter, Selby and Andrews headed upstairs, climbing into the waiting vehicles, and the six perpetrators finally, at long last, set the, uh, let the, left the scene. I don't understand. Just fucking just wear fucking masks, motherfuckers. What the f now, just before we continue with today's episode of the podcast, let me tell you about our fantastic sponsors. First up, Generation Y. For fans of true crime podcasts, I'm guessing that's you, dear listener. The Generation Y podcast is essential listening. Hosts Aaron and Justin cover cases from all angles. They break down theories, do deep dives into forensic evidence, and discuss their opinions on the most perplexing cases. In a recent episode, Aaron and Justin investigate the case of Charles Cohen. In 1988, Charles murdered both of his parents in their home in Hockerson, Delaware. While he was on the run, many speculated that his double homicide had been a crime of passion or committed during a fit of rage. But when he was finally apprehended, Charles made it clear that his murderous rampage 
was far more sinister and premeditated than anyone expected. Look, if you like Casual Criminalist, Generation Y is a top-notch fit from you. It also comes from Wondery, who, uh, look, you've seen the podcast charts. You know Wondery's always up there making that good stuff. So yeah, Generation Y from Wondery. Check it out on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or you can listen ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. Fantastic. Also, a big shout out to today's second sponsor, Shopify. Shopify gives entrepreneurs the resources once reserved for big business, so upstarts, startups, and established businesses alike can sell everywhere, synchronize online and in-person sales, and easily stay informed. Scaling your business is a journey of endless possibility. I remember I had a friend who ran a, a big shop online, like it was started as a regular shop and then it became a big online shop. And I remember back in the day, he he had someone he had this super complicated system for like selling goods and services and then he did this for a few years and then shopify came along and he was like yeah i just made a second website and it just uses shopify and it's much easier and i didn't have to pay someone a fortune absolute fortune to develop uh, a custom solution so shopify i don't know from my mate's experience was just uh, apparently extremely good i've also uh, got a little online store that sells my beard oils and stuff that is run off shopify easily so look, but it's not just me. It's not just my mate. Shopify powers millions of businesses from first sale to full scale. Reach customers online and across social networks with an ever-growing suite of channel integrations and apps, including Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Pinterest, and more. More than a store, Shopify grows with you. Go to shopify.com casual, all lowercase, for a free 14-day trial and get full access to Shopify's entire suite of features. Grow your business with Shopify today. Go to shopify.com casual right now. Shopify.com slash casual and now back to today's podcast vengeance of the survivors three wait wasn't everyone dead three hours later joyce walker the mother of stanley and wife of orin along with their son lynn walker arrived at the hi-fi shop they had naturally grown worried about what their loved ones were doing looking at the shop window they saw the place had been stripped bare it was clear that a robbery had occurred it was then that lynn walker heard sounds of groaning and yelling coming from within the shop lynn broke down the back door while joyce walker went to a payphone to call the police stumbling down the stairs lynn walker discovered the bodies of five people his father oren was gravely wounded but alive having sustained burns to his mouth and chin damage to his ear and throat and cut to the back of his head where the bullet had grazed him he was making the noises that had been detected by his son stanley walker unfortunately was dead from a single gunshot wound to the head the town of ogden had been robbed of a kind young man and a community leader sherry ansley had similarly died from a gunshot wound she was only 18 and was to be married a few months later carol nesbitt who had arrived at the hi-fi shop out of concern for her son was taken by ambulance to st benedict's hospital but was pronounced dead on arrival 16 year old courtney nesbitt had survived drinking the train cleaner and the gunshots to the head but was taken to hospital in critical condition doctors did not expect him to live for long for several days courtney nesbitt lay in the intensive care unit clinging on to his life his father, Dr. Byron Nesbitt, sat by his bedside 24 hours a day, holding his hand, scarcely leaving his side. Numerous relatives and church members also stayed at the hospital, keeping vigil for the young man. In the end, Courtney Nesbitt pulled through and survived. He spent 266 days in hospital. He had suffered irreparable brain damage, but he was alive. Early episodes of The Casual Criminalist, people commented in the comments like that it revolved around me having a moral dilemma about the death penalty. The more casual criminalist I do, the more I'm like, yeah, okay. I kind of get get it. 
I mean, I don't... Uh, okay, I don't know. I don't know. These motherfuckers deserve... Deserve to be killed. They deserve death, right? There should be no forgiveness for people who do something like this. Is that is that bad? Is that moral? Is that... I don't know. Just reading this. And what they do to people, pointlessly, for $5,000. It's just like, these are people who don't... I don't know. Do they? I don't know if they deserve prison. I feel... I don't know. It's a tricky one, isn't it? Is it so tricky? I don't know. I don't know. The ongoing moral debate that I have with the death penalty. Yes, I know. Police arrived in the hi-fi shop a few minutes after the call by Joyce Walker. As the surviving victims were rushed off to hospital, police inspected the scene. The brutality of the crimes dawned on the officers, and it sickened them. A press release went out, and the details of the robbery and the murders hit the early morning news. A few hours later, an anonymous tip came in to the police from an airman who worked at the Air Force Base a few miles south of Ogden. The informant told police that in the days prior to the hi-fi murders that he had heard William Andrews and Pierre Del Selby discussing the robbery of the store, the massive payout, and rehearsing the drain cleaner poisoning scene from Magnum Force. The informant also claimed that Andrews said to him, quote, One of these days, I'm going to rob that hi-fi shop, and if anybody gets in the way, I'm going to kill them. They didn't get in your way. They didn't get in your way. If you had worn a mask and told them to f*** off, they would have f***ed off and you could have taken all of the stuff. Because you know who doesn't care about stuff? People who are going to die if they do. He's <laughs> just not that bright. I think that's the problem. Like, this guy's just dumb. He's uh, he's bad. He's bad. He's definitely bad. But if he was smarter, I don't think he would have killed them. The, ins the intimate knowledge the anonymous informant had of their plan and the fact that the informant did not report such alarming talk to his superior officers makes it quite likely that the informant was actually one of the members of the six-man team who assaulted the hi-fi shop that night but had thought that Andrews and Selby had gone too far. Alternatively, the informant had been told of these plans for no reason and did not lift a finger to prevent tragedy from occurring. There's a big difference between hearing people talk about crimes and reporting it and then... And because I mean, planning is planning. Planning crimes is probably a crime, isn't it? I mean, it's there's that thing where it's like, is that a thought crime? Because it's like me thinking about robbing a store is not a crime. At least I hope it's not a crime. <laughs> I haven't really seen. I mean, I'm like I'm thinking about robbing a store right now, but like only because I'm thinking about it in an abstract sense, not because I'm actually going to do it. Uh, and we don't want thought crimes, but like planning the commission of a crime that sounds like an offense, doesn't it? But also, it's not. Uh, guys, I don't know. I feel like that could just be people talking <laughs> Like, just being like, oh, I'm going to rob that store. I'm going to be rich. going to get my $5,000. Going to buy a car. It's like, wait, how much is a car? No, it doesn't work. It's not that much money. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I get why he didn't report it. I get it. Because it's like sometimes you just don't want to stick your nose in someone else's business. And you don't think that it's actually going to happen. I don't think that's that bad. Ugh. A few hours after the news of the hi-fi murders broke, two teenage boys dumpster diving at Hill Air Force Base discovered the wallets and purses of the five victims stripped of cash but still containing their driver's licenses. The two teenage boys had... Why would you take those? Why would you take their wallets? Just take the money out of the wallets and leave them there. Why would you... These guys are just not that bright. I think that's what I'm really realizing. They're just not that bright. Yeah. These guys probably didn't graduate from West Point. The two teenage boys had seen the news and recognized the victims from their photographs. They dropped the evidence where they'd found it and called the police. With April the 23rd having been having barely begun, police had two now had two lines of inquiry pointing directly at Hill Air Force Base and directly pointing at the two people who actually led the crime. They're just not that bright. <laughs> police arrived at the base early that morning to retrieve the evidence from the dumpster. 
A crowd of concerned airmen and mechanics gathered to watch the scene. Suspecting that the perpetrators were in the crowd, a detective decided to put on a little show for them. As each wallet or purse was retrieved uh, from the dumpster and placed in a plastic bag, the detectives held each one with a pair of tongs and waved it at the crowd. He spoke dramatically about how this evidence would lead police very quickly to the arrest and the people responsible for such a heinous crime. He's trying to get them to run, isn't he? It's pretty clever. Observing the men watching his display, the detectives saw most of them stood there and stared in grim silence. That is, with the exception of two men, who paced back and forth at the back of the crowd, speaking to each other, constantly making panicked gestures with their hands. <laughs> Not only, not only, only are these guys the worst human beings because of their fucking atrocious actions, but they're also just the worst criminals. Just like, just, just dumb. Just really dumb. I kind of like how dumb they are because they're fucking horrible and they're stupid. I like, I mean, good lord. Could you be more obvious? The two men were approached and identified. <laughs> been less than a day as william andrews and pierre dale selby combined with the anonymous tip the two men were arrested and detained on suspicion of murder a third man keith roberts was and there's people alive so they're going to identify them pretty quick was arrested for under suspicion of being one of the getaway drivers selby an air force mechanic had priors he was a prime suspect of the october the 5th 1973 murder of air force sergeant edward jefferson but police had lacked evidence and selby was never formally charged a few months later but he's still in the air force i guess if it's like you're you're innocent because there's not yeah you're innocent until proven guilty so i was like okay but we kind of think he killed someone can't we at least fire him or like discharge him or something although maybe it's better he's in the although no he's not obviously better he's in the air force because he committed a way worse crime later oh my god i don't know this is complicated no it's not just kill him a few months later selby was arrested for car theft in salt lake city and was out on bail pending trial at the time of the hi-fi murders how has he not been discharged from the military? Police obtained a search warrant for the men's barracks. There they discovered advertising flyers for the hi fi shop and a rental contract for a storage unit. <laughs> ah! Ah! Ah, you're so dumb! Police drove to the storage facility in question and, surprise, surprise, discovered sound equipment stolen from the hi fi shop and a half empty bottle of drain cleaner. Oh my god. And the murder weapon? Are you fucking shitting me? Given that half the bottle was split between five people, it's no wonder that drinking it didn't kill the victims outright, but merely tortured and disfigured them. It is in this way that incompetent criminals can sometimes be the most dangerous ones. Selby and Andrew's sheer, utter stupidity concerning robbery and murder achieved nothing but creating an extreme degree of suffering in their victims, while not getting rid of all the witnesses they had planned. How were there still so many pages left in this? I mean, it's open and shut. Bang him up. Get him in the chamber. Whatever. I guess you got to catch the other four guys who were involved as well, but I mean, good lord, how did you think you were going to get away with this? The public mood was vengeful. The act of robbery was bad enough. The decision to murder any witnesses was a callous and senseless bit of overkill. Robbery on this scale is a 1 out of 10. The murder of these people is a 10. You tortured, raped, and murdered. Robbery in this thing, I don't even give a fuck about. I'll be like, okay, take all the shit. I don't care. I wouldn't even prosecute that. The other shit, though... That is a 10. Literally, their method of execution was barbaric and ineffectual. Their efforts, in the end, were futile. By doing what they did, they had made sure that their robbery of the hi-fi store would guarantee a far worse penalty than the thieves would usually get. They weren't just bandits. They were sadistic, mur sadistic murderers. And Utah had the death penalty! Uh-oh, boys! What have you done? 
All that planning, all that carnage for just a few thousand bucks. William Andrews, Pierre Selby, and Keith Roberts were tried for first-degree murder and robbery. At trial, Oren Walker gave harrowing evidence where he recounted the torture and murder of his son in front of his eyes. Much of the events were reconstructed from Oren's testimony, in addition to what Andrews and Selby admitted to under questioning. Courtney Nesbitt had been... Courtney Nesbitt had sustained severe brain damage and had no memory of the robbery or anything that followed it. During the trial, it became established that William Andrews had devised the plan to rob the hi-fi store along with the idea of leaving no witnesses, and it was Pierre Selby who had acted as his enforcer. The two men had both forced five victims to drink drain cleaner, but it was Selby himself who carried out the three murders and the two attempted murders, along with the rape of Sherry Ansley before Selby executed her. Selby, man, you gotta get that. You gotta get that needle. It also looks. It also soon became established at trial that the third defendant, Keith Roberts, had no connection to the murders in the basement, having only remained at the wheel of the getaway car while the store was robbed. And despite Andrews being the alleged mastermind of the crime, it was apparent that both Andrews and Roberts were frightened of Selby, whom the jury thought was clearly a violent psychopath. Yeah, I, I should point out, like in this case where it's it, this is just one of those things where it's like super open and shut selby's a psycho he murdered and raped people as part of a robbery in that case it's like we know he is guilty the problem that i never address in these casual criminalists with regard to the death penalty and i know we're going back there again and i'm sorry i'm sorry I'm, i know hit the comments is we know in all of these cases that we cover we know the problem is with the death penalty like innocent people are executed on death row which is insane and that is the argument against it for me i have again i'm not sure but i've kind of come to the belief that i believe there are some crimes that people do deserve to be executed for the problem is when there are when it's not as open and shut when it's not a casual criminalist episode but it's crime that is less we don't you know it's when someone could be innocent that's the problem because i believe it's better for 10 people to go free who are guilty than one innocent person to be imprisoned and i think that's kind of how the justice system is built in most countries most places and i think that's right so that's an obviously added complicated factor rather than just being me like super pro death penalty let's see if we can not talk about this for the rest of today's episode <laughs> i'm sorry in november 1974 the getaway driver keith roberts was declared of all murder charges and convicted of robbery he was given five years to life and spent 13 years in prison before being released in 1987 he was re he relocated to oklahoma five years later on august the 8th 1992 roberts shot himself unable to live with the guilt pierre del selby was convicted on three counts of first degree murder and two counts of robbery he was handed three death sentences he was not charged or convicted on the two attempted murders or causing grievous bodily harm the death sentences so pierre was the oh pierre was selby that's pierre selby so he was the really terrible dude um good he got three death penalties <laughs> he was not charged for grievous bodily harm though really the death sentences were considered enough to see justice done yeah okay it's like the robbery just fuck it if we're gonna get him three death sentences it's enough it's enough could only be dead once William Andrews was also convicted on three counts of first-degree murder and two counts of robbery. Although he had not shot the victims himself, the prosecution argued that he did devise the plan to kill all the witnesses and had forced the victims to drink drain cleaner in an attempt to kill him. Just as a mob boss does not have to be the trigger man to go down for murder, Andrew Williams was considered to be just as complicit in the three deaths. Additionally, Andrews had voluntarily left the basement and waited upstairs while Selby executed or attempted to execute four of the five hostages and then raped and murdered Sherry Ansley. Then Andrews came back downstairs for the the second attempted murder of Oren Walker, showing complicity with and demonstrating no resistance to Selby's brutal slayings. As a result, William Andrews was also handed three death sentences. It is vital 
at this juncture to reflect whether you think that three death sentences for Selby and Andrews reflect the severity of their crimes. Consider also that the death penalty is part of Utah law. Oren Walker grieved the loss of his son and lived the rest of his life making few comments to the press. He died on June the 4th, 2000, age 69. Corny Nesbitt was released from hospital in late 1974. After a great deal of struggle and perseverance, Corny managed to graduate from high school and pass his pilot's exam. Unfortunately, due to his brain damage and chronic pain, Corny dropped out of college and could not keep a regular job, and he spent the rest of his life on disability support. In 1985, Corny married Catherine Hunter. Corny died June the 4th, 2002. Age only 44. The Twist I've not mentioned this so far in the script, Simon, but the perpetrators of the Hi-Fi murders were black. Soon after, I am reading this whole script and it's just white dudes in my mind. Is that right? I don't know if that's... I guess that's less racist than I find. Like, I, I'm, let's just not comment on this. <laughs> let's just get a bit more deep into it. Soon after their convictions for murder, both Selby and Andrews started making allegations that they had received an unfair trial due to systemic racism in the Utah judicial system, and even alleged that if they had been white men convicted of the same crimes, they would have given life imprisonment rather than three death sentences. Look, I just read this whole thing assuming these were white dudes. These deserve, deserve to be killed. Oh my god, I don't know. This is complicated. No, it's not. Just kill him. Bang him up. Get him in the chamber. Whatever. So, and I'll be like, no, boys. <laughs> oh, God, is it because I'm white? I don't know. Oh, it. We're getting... I don't know. I don't know. This is complicated. Wait, I'm a white dude thinking that these white dudes should get killed. Even if I was a racist, then I'd... Then I'd no, because I'm not a racist, so it. Oh, oh God. It's gone. <laughs> David, why'd you do this to me? I mean, it's also complicated. Of course, of course, there's systemic racism in the US and I'm sure beyond the US justice system. I mean, black people are way more likely to get, statistically, right? Way more likely to get convicted of the same crime than a white dude, which is fucked up. Further, Andrews maintained that since he had not carried out any of the actual murders himself, that it was racism which had gotten him sentenced to death. I wonder, Simon, if these revelations change your opinion at all on the sentencing of Andrews and Selby from just a few paragraphs ago. Were you okay with the death sentences, or were you already leaning towards life imprisonment? I mean, I, I don't know about the second guy. For Selby, I was like, yeah, uh, that guy, I was pretty sold on the death penalty. For the second guy, I didn't comment which is mostly because I said I wasn't going to talk about the death penalty more. <laughs> Here we are. But I felt maybe we should push that towards more life imprisonment um, because he would—he didn't actually kill anybody, technically. Um, I don't know where I stand. I, I still believe Selby... Probably, I mean, I felt really comfortable with him getting the death penalty and I don't think that the color of his skin should change my opinion on that, frankly. Unless there was racism in the system, but I haven't seen any evidence of that in this case, other than the like obvious built-in racism that exists. But on the prima facie, this guy did these horrible crimes that I think a person should be killed for. I guess. Oh my god, this is morally complex. <laughs> and could I also pose the same question to the podcast listening audience? The YouTube audience may already have been aware of Andrews and Selby's ethnicity, depending on whether Jen posted their photos earlier in the episode uh, no i didn't oh my god that's so true the people listening if you don't know these crimes people listening to this show and people watching this show 
are going to have a different experience. Which is crazy. But it also allows an opportunity for an honest question. Would you have gladly seen these men, regardless of their ethnicity, sentenced to death in Utah, given the nature of the Hi-Fi murders? Or despite Utah's legal code, would you have preferred life sentences, regardless of their ethnicity? Like so many questions, there's no clear correct answer, and we shall see if your opinion changes as we dig into the context and what Andrews and Selby alleged about the trial. First, to get a minor detail out of the way, detail out of the way, purely for the sake of accuracy, while appealing his sentence, Selby changed his name 27 times while in prison, allegedly to protect his family from the press. He finally decided on Pierre Dale Sebley, Selby, a rearrangement of existing names, which is why some sources and other true crime shows on the Hi-Fi murders give them in a different order. After Selby and Andrews were sentenced to death in November 1974, there was intense protest from the NAACP. Note to Simon, always pronounced America as NAACP. Oh, okay. NAACP. Sorry. Or for people not from America or familiar with its politics, the National Association for the Advancements of Colored People, founded in 1909, in case anyone was curious about the phrasing used in the name. Yeah, like, okay. I was like, wait, the National Advancement for the Association of Colored People has colored people in its name? I think that's okay. Uh, the, NAA, the NAACP was joined by Amnesty International, a prominent international human rights uh, non-governmental organization, which also began campaigning on Selby and Andrew's behalf. The major bone of contention. This is, okay, fine. You can do all of this to investigate whether there was racism in the verdict and the sentencing and all of this stuff. Um, yeah, okay, great. The major bone of contention for both organizations was that Selby and Andrews were both black and were vict- and the victims were all white. And most crucially, it's going to be the jury's going to be just all white people from Utah. It was that the jury found them guilty were all white. Amnesty International claimed that the only black member of the jury pool was dismissed by the prosecution during jury selection and they initially cited racial bias. It was later revealed that the black jury candidate was a police officer who, pers- who personally knew, quote, just about everybody tied to the case. Yeah, I think you'd be pretty okay with that dude on your jury. Also for context, if you want, as, as a prosecutor. Also for context, the local population at the time was 2% black, otherwise being overwhelmingly white and Hispanic, 80% and 15% respect, uh, respectively, uh, as a source for jury selection. And at the time, the American judicial system had no policies for ensuring a balance of ethnicities on the jury in, quote, racially sensitive cases, as some courts in the U.S. have adopted and continue to practice today. Yeah, it's jury of your peers, right? That seems fair. There is even wider context that made the death sentences of Selby and Andrews even more controversial. Wait, who decides the death sentence in America? Is the judge the sentencing person or is it the jury? I feel for death sentences it might be the jury. Across the Western world for the past few decades, numerous countries had abolished the death penalty, as did a large number of U.S. states on an individual basis. Then in a landmark case, Fernand and Georgia in 1972, just two years prior to the Hi-Fi murders, the United States Supreme Court struck down the death penalty, citing that it violated the Eighth and Fourteenth Amendments. The Eighth Amendment vaguely prescribed cruel and unusual punishments, and the Fourteenth Amendment demanded equal treatment for all citizens under the law. The Furman and Georgia Supreme Court decision had the result of putting an informal halt on all executions in the United States in 1972. Many of the death sentences active at the time were downgraded to life imprisonment. In some, some legal scholars at the time speculated it would be impossible for the United States to bring back the death penalty ever again. Well, they did. Nevertheless, in January 1973, the Utah legislature passed its own statute that independently brought back the death penalty to the state regardless of the federal decision. Wait. Don't the states have to obey the federal decision on things like this? As did a number of pro-execution U.S. states following the Supreme Court decision. 
is now why it's called the Supreme Court? In 1974, with the formal moratorium on the death penalty still active, but not formally enshrined in federal law, the Utah court sentenced both Selby and Andrews to death, hence the outrage of the NAACP and Amnesty International. Yeah, that doesn't seem right. If there is no federal death penalty, should a state, like, if the... This is like that federal versus state rights thing. There's another controversial issue. Later, the informal moratorium on the death penalty was overthrown in 1976 after the Supreme Court found in the case of Gregg and Georgia that in aggravated circumstances the death penalty could be applied. The use of the death penalty became increasingly common in many U.S. states following this decision. Nevertheless, the death penalty remained highly controversial and repugnant in the overwhelmingly liberal circles that animated most of the NAACP and Amnesty International. But I did some additional research. According to the Utah statute itself, the death penalty may be applied in cases of aggravated murder. And aggravate, is this the robbery and murder at the same time? Did I actually get something right? An aggravated murder is defined by 20 possible criteria, of which the hi-fi murders qualify for 8 or 9. Okay, yeah, you hit that. These criteria include, but are not restricted to, murdering more than two people in a single incident and or attempting to murder even more people in the same incident, murdering in connection with rape or robbery, murdering for monetary gain, murdering with the employment of poison, murdering a hostage, murdering a, a, in a particularly cruel and heinous manner involving torture, and mutilating or disfiguring a victim's body before or after death. Any single one of these, under Utah law, would have qualified a convicted person for the death sentences. Death sentence. Well, you're qualified. Clearly. Nonetheless, the specter of racism haunted the trial. Most crucially, during a scheduled lunch break, someone slipped the jury members a napkin on which a doodle of a man hanging from a scaffold with the instructions to write, uh, with the instruction to, quote, hang the N-words. Naturally, the napkin's author did not self-censor with the term N-word. A jury member approached the bailiff and handed him the napkin. Several other jury members also asked the bailiff if this would affect the trial. The bailiff replied not to let the behavior of outsiders affect their decision. The person who initially passed the napkin was never identified. The NAACP and Amnesty International argued that this napkin evoked a lynch mob mentality that had influenced the jury and it should be grounds for a mistrial. Um, I don't know if I'm sitting on that jury and I see that. I'm like, what the f*** is wrong with that person? But this was back in the day in Utah, not 2022 30-year-old Simon on the jury. This is like, there was more racism back in the day. And I imagine like Utah, it's 98% white or whatever. Uh... Uh, uh, but the crimes were horrible. The crimes were bad. During the trial, initial reports tied the murders back to a black supremacist movement, and a newspaper falsely alleged William Andrews made the black power fist at Oran Walker while in the courtroom. Well, that's f***ed up. But how about you don't lie about s***? How about you just do it on the basis of the facts, which are f***ing horrible? Beyond the fact that the jury members were white, the, NA the NAACP also pointed out the majority of them were practicing Mormons. At the time, the Mormon church enacted a racist policy that did not allow black people to become priests. I know, I'm always, I, know I shouldn't be surprised by this, but I kind of am. It's... Nah, 1970s were pretty racist. Okay, I'm not surprised. This allegation never made it into appeal deliberations since, one, it accused the Mormon jurors of being biased with no evidence beyond their being Mormon, and two, the NAACP's claim was prejudicial against a religion which was not seen as bigotry, of a which was seen as bigotry 
of a different kind. Um, how about no? The NAACP also argued it was racism that caused William Andrews to be sentenced to death, despite not being present in the room for Selby's brutal slayings and the rape of Sherry Ansley, when the other white murderers in the state who committed the crimes, crimes by their own hands, were given life sentences. Uh, is that... I'd be very interested in all the statistics on that were. Like, can we look at analogous crimes and, because there must have been aggravated murders and stuff, can we look at similar crimes and see what the sentences were and look statistically? Because if the statistics show that analogous cases with white people were getting life sentences and these black guys got death sentences, then obviously that's pretty f***ed up. We need to look at those stats. Because, like, what I might feel doesn't matter if that's what the statistics show. At appeal, the judges argued that this was because not all murderers, such as someone who murders one person in a crime of passion, qualified for any of the criteria for aggravated murder. Fine, but let's look at other cases of aggravated murder. Are there not any? Utah's big. Come on. Additionally, the judges argued that Andrews had administered the drain cleaner with the intent of killing the five victims. A medical examiner further reported that Stanley Walker and Karen Isbitt, being the most compliant in consuming the drain cleaner, would have died within 12 hours of drinking it if they hadn't been shot by Selby. William Andrews always maintains that while he did indeed pour the drain cleaner into a cup and administered it, he did not believe that the victims would die from it. Wait, wasn't he basing it on that movie he saw? Where they were like, the person died instantly, and then he was like, yeah, that'll work. Uh, uh. Quote, it was not with the intent of using it to kill the people. In hindsight, I don't know what I was thinking. I was only 19. The police pointed to the anonymous tip, which claimed that Andrew stated prior to the robbery an intent to kill any witnesses, and also to Andrew's admission under interrogation that he had purchased the drain cleaner with a clear intent of using it on the victims. The appeals judges stated that if Andrews intended to poison the victims with drain cleaner but not kill them, then there was no satisfactory explanation as to why Andrews intended to murder to torture the victims when up to that point they had only been witnesses to a robbery. Nevertheless, the fact remained that Andrews did not take part in any of the actual murders firsthand. When it came to the shootings, Oren Walker himself testified that Andrews had said to Selby, quote, I can't do it. I'm scared. But temporarily, and before temporarily heading upstairs. The case in the US is pretty clear that you do not need to have your finger on the trigger to also go down for murder when you appear to be in favor of having one of your accomplices carry out the killings, much less devise the plan to kill all witnesses in the first place or attempt to murder the victims with drain cleaner beforehand. According to that case law, Andrews was by definition complicit, but there is such a thing as extenuating circumstances affecting sentencing. At the time Andrews was sentenced in 1974, Utah law did not give jurors the option of sentencing people to life imprisonment when they met any of the 20 criteria for aggravated murder. In 1974, the death penalty was automatic. The law was changed subsequently to allow the option of life imprisonment even in cases of aggravated murder. However, the Utah Supreme Court rejected the idea of a new sentencing that would include the option of life imprisonment since the court judge argued that the new law could not be applied retroactively. I'm sorry, but then the, the death penalty is not even the jury's decision. The jury's decision is looking at this case and saying, is this aggravated murder? Yes is aggravated murder there's no question did that guy um essentially act as an agent for the andrews guy did selby act as an agent of the by killing the other people yes he did and it's aggravated so automatically the death penalty gets applied we need to look at the stats about if there's no the problem is if there's no analogous cases then you don't have the data but it seems like this is a very logical progression of 
the law. Meanwhile, the appeal of Pierre Dale Selby against his death sentence claimed that the Utah statute shifted the burden of proof onto the defendant to prove that while committing the murders, he did not qualify for any of the 20 criteria. The U.S. Court of Appeals Selby didn't qualify for any of the 20 criteria? Are you smoking crack? Of course he qualified for the criteria. There were many criteria, and he meant like eight or nine of them. What the f***? Who's, which lawyer was this arguing this? What are you smoking? The U.S. Court of Appeals rejected this argument since the prosecution itself proved that Selby qualified for numerous criteria, and the defendant did not have to prove otherwise. Selby also argued that the Fifth Amendment right was against self-incrimination had been violated when he had not been formally advised that he had the right to remain silent and was examined by psychiatrist Dr. Lewis Munch when determining uh, whether Selby was sane and fit to stand trial. Selby had instead responded to Munch's questions. However, Munch gave no testimony that incriminated Selby. All Munch said was that he was fit to stand trial. After more than 13 years and dozens of appeals, the death sentences held for both Selby and and Andrews. No closure, only death. While on death row in Utah State Prison, Pierre Dale Selby and William Andrews were hated by the other inmates, including the prison's black population, for the brutality of the Hi Fi murders. In 1977, another death row inmate, Gary Gilmore, was convicted of two murders and was the first person to be executed following the end of the moratorium on the death penalty. Reportedly, he yelled at Selby and Andrews on the way to his execution chamber either, I'll see you in hell, or adios, I'll be seeing you directly. In the initial years following their convictions, both Selby and Andrews had to fight against getting executed by firing squad. What? 1977? I mean, it seems I'm alarmed and shocked because that I thought like, holy, I, firing squad? But also if someone was like lethal injection or firing squad, I'd probably choose firing squad. Um, because I don't know. I saw those news articles where that lethal injection goes wrong. Holy shit. Uh, where was and still is a legal form of punishment in Utah. Oh my god, Utah, what are you up to? It's 2022! In the event, Pierre Dale Selby was executed by lethal injection on August 28, 1987. In Selby's will, he bequeathed all of his money to William Andrews, which amounted to a whopping $29. Selby's last words prior to his execution were, quote, I'll be glad when this is over. The murder of three people, the rapist of a woman, and the torturer and attempted murder of two more people died, died soon after uttering these words. He was 34. Today, fewer people dispute the validity of Selby's execution than they do with the death of William Andrews, who, after numerous appeals, was killed by lethal injection on the 30th of July 1992 at the age of 37. Yeah, the William Andrews ones is obviously much more complicated. I kind of believe that the, the law was... Whether the law is right or not, he fell onto the site on into that death penalty because of the crimes that he committed. I whether that law is right, I don't know. Um, that's that's more difficult and complicated. His final words were. Thank those who tried so hard to keep me alive. I hope they continue to fight for equal justice after I'm gone. Tell my family goodbye, and I love them. Four years later, on December the 19th, 1996, the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, a non-governmental organization based out of Costa Rica with no legal jurisdiction, found that the United States had violated its international obligations by denying William Andrews a fair trial free from racial discrimination, a claim that is strongly disputed by relevant officials in the Utah legal system. 
Did Andrews deserve death? Did he suffer racial discrimination during the trial and during sentencing? I shall let you ponder these questions for yourself in the comment section. Yeah, I mean... Wow, this is an intense episode, isn't it? Meanwhile, the final moments of today's episode should be given over to remembering the victims. Stanley Walker, Sherry Ansley, Cowan Nesbitt, all murdered. And the traumatized survivors, Oren Walker and Courtney Nesbitt. Courtney spent his entire life struggling with brain damage due to being shot in the head by Selby and was in chronic pain from the drain cleaner administered by Andrews. After the execution of Andrews in 1992, Courtney told the Salt Lake Tribune that he had already forgiven Selby and Andrews and added, quote, where does the anger a victim feels for a perpetrator go when the perpetrator is gone? Courtney died 10 years after Andrews in 2002 at the age of 44, his life cut short by decades-long illnesses caused by his attempted murder on one horrible night on the 22nd of April, 1974. Dismembered Appendices The Hi-Fi murders were explored in a 1982 book by Gary Kinder and was depicted in a TV movie, Aftermath, a test of love in 1991. Beyond that, the story has rarely been touched on by Hollywood, possibly due to the racial controversy, and is also surprisingly under-examined by many true crime channels, despite the incident's public notoriety. As I mentioned at the outset, I got a lot. Of, I got a lot of requests for this one. Number two. Only a few months before the Hi-Fi murders, Pierre Dale Selby was a prime suspect in another murder investigation. Shortly after joining the United States Air Force and being posted at Hill Air Force Base as a helicopter mechanic, Selby befriended Sergeant Edward Jefferson. On October 1, 1973, Selby was at Jefferson's apartment taping music when Jefferson found that his car keys were missing. Jefferson and Selby searched the apartment but could not find them. A few hours later, someone had taken the car keys to the base for duplication, signing in the name as Curtis Alexander. Selby returned to Jefferson's apartment and the the next day miraculously found the keys there. Jefferson became suspicious of Selby and accused him of theft while changing the locks on his apartment into his car ignition. Then, sometime between the hours of 10pm and 4am on the night of October the 4th and 5th, Jefferson was murdered by having a bayonet lodged in his face so deep that only the handle could be seen. Good lord. While Selby was strongly suspected, police did not have enough evidence to lay charges on him. For Jefferson's murder. Number three. William Andrews and Pierre Del Selby became close friends while serving at Hill Air Force Base in 1973 and 1974, and these men became part of a larger circle of associates who would frequently be in each other's company. In March 1974, after Selby was out on bail for a Salt Lake City car theft, Andrews and Selby filed the papers to begin the process of leaving the Air Force. Police had alleged that Selby probably had the intention of skipping his trial, and that Selby and Andrews, along with their other associates, had decided on transitioning to criminal career of which the Hi-Fi murders were only to be the first step. Number 4. Although William Andrews, Pierre Del Selby, and Keith Roberts, one of the getaway drivers, were caught and convicted for the Hi-Fi murders, none of the other three men in the six-man team, which knocked off the Hi-Fi shop that night, were ever identified and brought to justice. Um, as we end today, I know this one has, like, political, racial, all sorts of connotations. And I like how David brought it back to the victims in the end, because that's who these episodes are about. It's not. And that's what I would like to end this one on, just about another comment that it's about the victims and their struggle and their ruined lives. And we didn't even mention it, but all the people who's like were affected by this and their families and all of that stuff. Um, that's what I'd like to end this one thinking about, rather than the political complicatedness of it all, even though, of course, that's important. Just going to end it there.
Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.